This March, I'll be launching a special run of episodes called Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. Theory in the Flesh is made possible because of funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, and they have created a survey to better understand listener appetite for health and research-related podcast content. I would be so grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the survey. Alongside showing support for Busy Being Black, you'll be able to enter yourself into a draw for tickets to this year's British Podcast Awards. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. Since my conversation with political activist Shamir Sani in 2018, I've become increasingly reluctant to ask people about their coming out journeys. Here in the West, coming out has become the apex of our LGBTQ experience, and it's often suggested that if we're not out to everyone, we're not proud of who we are. I'm more and more interested in the internal and emotional undertaking of loving ourselves, and the bravery, courage, and determination it takes for us to embark on these very private pilgrimages towards self-love, especially in a world that tries so hard to make us feel so small. Loving ourselves and coming out are not necessarily the same thing. Today's conversation with Rav Bansal is a beautiful exploration of the private and public considerations we make on this journey of self-acceptance and self-love and what it can mean for ourselves and the communities we represent if we do decide to come out. Rav is a baker and broadcaster who rose to fame as a contestant on Great British Bake Off in 2016. In June of this year, he came out publicly after years of questioning and exploring who he is, what he believes, and what he wants to achieve in the world. Rav discussed his parents' reaction to his coming out, the incredible emotional support he received from his sister, and why he decided to share himself with the world. We explore the role Sikhism has played in his life and his outlook, his work with the UK's Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group, and why he's embarked on his newest broadcasting venture, his podcast, Do You Wear That in the Shower, where he and his guests challenge some of the widely held myths and misconceptions about Sikhs and Sikhism. Importantly, Rav shares with us the steps he took for himself to move closer to himself so that he could live and serve of others. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Rav Bansal. Rav, thank you so much for being here and for listening to the show and just being such a wonderful human being, I'm like absolutely thrilled and delighted that you're here. Oh my gosh, thank you so much, Josh. It's such an honor for me to be here. I've been a fan of this podcast for a very long time now. Uh-huh. I've been listening to you and listening to your guests and it, it really truly is an inspiration to see and hear so many wonderful voices that are giving me inspiration on a daily basis. So thank you so much for having me. Of course, I've been um, listening to your show. <laughs> thank you. And I love it. Um, do you wear that in the shower? Yes. Do you want to, um, let's start off by by talking about the show and, and what you're trying to achieve with the show. Sure. So the whole idea of the show came about during an awkward interaction that I had with a gentleman who I was on a date with. Um, he looked at me and asked me in a very serious tone if I wore my turban in a shower. I wear a turban, I'm a Sikh. Um, and I was rather amused by his, his question because it just seemed so ridiculous that someone would think that. And he was 
it to me it appeared that he was genuinely like interested to know if that's something that I do on a daily basis and it confused me but it also made me start thinking about all of the other microaggressions that I face mm. on a daily basis um, and I started to ask my friends and families about their experiences and it became like a constant thing that they've been dealing with and I thought wouldn't it be great to make a podcast where we can talk about it and dissect it um, in a way for us to understand what the intentions are behind these queries that we get. Um, and so I, I've made a podcast. I've only done three episodes at the moment, but I'm really fascinated by my guest journey because we talk, we take a bit of a deep dive into not just these experiences that they've had but we talk about their life's life and their life experiences too uh, and I get to learn from them and they get to learn from me and the audience get to learn from all of us and that's why I enjoy your show because I learn so much and I'm hoping that the audience can gain a lot too from hearing my show. I think your your conversation with Sam is is my favorite so far yes and it's just so in, enlightening to to hear what the experience is as a South Asian gay man, you know, because I think we as black people are probably better at imagining what someone right. else's experience, well, queer black people are probably better at imagining what someone else's experience mm -hmm. might be. But to hear it from, um, and, and in the way that you're doing it as well, I thought these are really sensitive and, and gentle and tender questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that you've created something really, really quite remarkable. Thank you so much. So with the Sam episode, the reason why I wanted to talk to Sam was because I had met him in the past and we had had a conversation about some of our own experiences and they mirrored quite closely. Um, and I wanted to kind of get his perspective because he is Muslim and uh, he grew up in an Indian Punjabi household, similar to me, even though I'm Sikh. Um, and I wanted to hear hear what he was, how he was dealing with all of these kind of things that are coming his way. Um, and it turned out to be a really fascinating insight into his life because I just felt so connected to him because mm. everything that he was saying is exactly what I went through. And he's come out of it the other way in such a positive way, just like I have. And we both feel really privileged to be able to do that because there are so many people who don't have that um, outcome, unfortunately, particularly within the South Asian community. And we w both of us wanted to highlight our voices because there aren't many of us doing mm, it. Mm. Um, there are, as I mentioned in the podcast, there are only a handful of us who are outspoken, out and proud and in the public eye and talking about these issues that are often considered to be very taboo within the South Asian community because it's so deeply rooted in faith and culture. And if you kind of are kind of being a bit deviant, quote. <laughs> um, or kind perverse. Of, or perverse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I hate that word. <laughs> but if you don't fall into those norms, often mm -hmm. you can feel isolated and ostracized. And um, I wanted to reassure other LGBTQ plus South Asian people that we exist and we are thriving and you can too. And I think that's the message that came out of that episode with Sam. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to bring you on is because uh, it's obviously busy being black, but I am busy being black. So it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean my guests are busy being black. Um, and I think there are so many parallels between our experiences. I think one of the things that, that you and Sam broached on the show was this kind of internal dialogue you had when your mother um, 
your mothers were talking about uh, bringing other women into the family and yeah. how excited they were. Mm-hmm. And it was a moment of incredible vulnerability where Sam was like, I was taking um, family photos and thinking, I'm going to ruin all this one day. Yeah, I mean, exactly how I felt too, mm-hmm. because uh, from a young age, as a South, South Asian person, not just a man, you're basically raised for marriage. It's it's part of the course of life. I'm sure it's like that in other cultures too, but um, within the South Asian um, culture, it's, it's kind of hammered into from a very, very young age. And when you're constantly given those messages and you, deep down you know that you're not going to be able to conform to those expectations, it can lead to a lot of inner turmoil. And it for me and for Sam, it kind of led to a series of issues um, when you look at mental health for example I suffered from depression and social anxiety as a result of having these feelings and concerns that I was going to split the family apart because um, like most gay people we always think of the worst case scenario (laughs) and we're always trying to prepare ourselves for that scenario and um, it's really really difficult because my parents my mum was born in India and my dad, even though he's he was born in India too, but he was raised in the UK. He came at the age of three years old. So he's been exposed to gay culture, so he knows what it is. But within the within our family, there has never ever been a discussion about gay people. I, I never heard the word gay growing up. Um and whenever I did it was kind of always said in a mocking tone or kind of, oh hey, look at that person, he must be gay. I heard the word queer flying around as an insult mm-hmm. amongst family members. So that kind of hearing that kind of thing kind of off that will put push you further back into the closet, I guess. Um and kind of not having those role models and not seeing people like you who are out um that was something that I struggled with a great deal because I didn't see any alternative. Everyone around me, my peers, the outcome was with them getting married to a woman and having children. There was nothing else that mm. I could relate to otherwise. And that's what I thought I had to do. And I I was fully prepared to do that. I was fully prepared to live a closeted life. Um, and What changed? I don't know. I think I got to an age where I realized that I needed to put my happiness first, regardless of what relationships might uh, um, end as a result. And it was a very, very difficult thing to come to that conclusion Mm. because I'm such a family-oriented person. I love my family. They're they're the best people in the world. But I knew, I, I was seeing the impact it was having on my own mental health and I just couldn't. There were two alternatives. Either, this is going to sound really morbid, but I I either was going to end it altogether or I was going to have to just accept it and embrace it. Um, I never said, I never came out to myself until the age of 26. Wow. So I lived a closeted life up until 26. And so I didn't have any interaction with any of, I didn't date, I didn't do any of that stuff. I was firmly in that closet and prepared to keep that closet door shut. But the turning point came because my sister in particular noticed a change in my behavior. Um, As in a, a towards a, a bad change. A bad change. Right. So she noticed that I was regressing. I was, wasn't interacting much with the family. She, she noticed that I was isolating myself a lot more. And she just sat me down and asked me, what, what's the deal? She's very blunt. Um, and it, that was the moment that I came out to her. And I said, look, I didn't, I didn't even say the words because I couldn't say the words. I just wrote it in a text message and I just sent it to her, even though she was sitting right in front of me. And um, she said, well, I get to come to a gay wedding then, I guess. 
<laughs> and, I, and I thought, even though that was a really beautiful thing for her yeah. to say, um, she did start to express her concerns about what the parents might think and mm. what the Im- impact it would have on the parents. Um, but just saying those words for the first time truly was the most freeing moment of my life. And when did you get a chance to speak them? When when did you get to that stage? It wasn't too long after I had come out to myself. So I kind of started to do my own research because I for the longest time I was in the closet I, I avoided anything to do with the word gay yeah, so I, I, I knew nothing so I, I didn't have any gay friends I, I, I just I knew nothing so when I decided to accept who I am I took a bit of a deep dive into kind of doing my own uh, research into queer history figuring out my my own, own place within the community and <laughs> weirdly trying to figure out if, out if it was actually for me. I know that sounds very strange. It doesn't at all. <laughs> uh, but I just tried to, I wanted to kind of be fully informed that this is exactly who I am. And I I wanted to be informed enough to be able to educate my family as well, because I didn't know much. And I knew that they were going to have so many questions that I needed to be informed to, to answer those questions. I'm covered in goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a... What a thoughtful way of looking at your coming out. I think that we forget that when we come out, you know, you said earlier that um, you had never discussed gayness or, Mm -hmm. you know, and and when you heard queer, it was a pejorative. I think that we forget that when we come out, it's sometimes the first time our parents have ever um, knowingly met a gay person, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're the first ones they meet. And so there's a coming out process for them too. And um, it's it's such a beautiful consideration to think, well, they'll have so many questions. I have so many questions. How can we do this? How, how can I teach myself so I can teach them? Yeah, well, thank you so much for saying that because it was a real struggle to try and to figure out my my own space because I, again, I never any never saw any faces that were similar to mine who were sharing their stories. So I couldn't really relate to a lot of the coming out stories that I saw online when I was trying to figure out if I was able to do it, if I was strong enough to do it. Um, but I I knew deep down that my parents loved me because they've always said to me that no matter what, they love me. But I never really fully understood what that meant because when you're younger, you take that for granted. Totally. Um, and you're like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not willing to test it either. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to test that. <laughs> but um, I think I kind of always expected there to be some kind of a negative reaction. Naturally, we all do. Mm. And so when the moment came for me to tell my my mum, I, rem- I will never forget this because... Um, so my sister started to coach me a bit as well because she, she said to me that you have to come out to the parents. You can't just stay in the closet. You have to say something to them. They deserve to know as well. And she she coached me and telling me that it'll be fine, so don't worry. Um, even if it isn't, you always have a space to stay if, if things get any worse. Um She'll always be there for me. Uh, and But I, I made the decision that I was going to come out to my parents during a dinner. Um, usually my parents will, after they've had dinner, they'll go out for a walk. And I, I thought I would join them on that walk. And that would be the moment that I would tell them. And um, I, I was actually very excited because I thought this is an opportunity for me to finally be who I am. And they'll get to see the real me. And I, I won't have any secrets to hide from them. And my father then tells me that he's not feeling well so he doesn't want to go on this walk and my mother was like oh you know do you and me just go for this walk but I was adamant that I was going to at least tell her if we're going to go on this walk and so we went it's usually about a 20 minute walk about 18 minutes of the walk I'm just talking about nonsense (laughs) waiting for the moment for me to say something and I saw the house in sight and then I just said to her mum um 
you're, you're always asking me why am I not settling down? Why am I not getting married? Have you ever thought why that might be? So I turned it on to her. And then she just said, well, you're busy with work. I understand that you're, you're really busy. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I am busy. But then do you think there might be something else there? And then she jokingly said, oh, are you going to tell me that you're gay? <laughs> and I just said yes. And she was stunned into silence. Because I think for me, even though I was closeted, I think it's pretty obvious that I am. <laughs> That's just my perception anyway. But she was stunned and she she never said a word to me. And as soon as she got home, she completely blanked my sister, who was also in the room at that time. And she just kind of found a corner. She just sat there and never spoke to a single person for a good few hours. And during those few hours, I, I thought that I had destroyed my relationship with my mother. Oh, that must have been agonizing. And I instantly regretted saying it because... There was just nothing. I was getting nothing from her. She wasn't talk. She wasn't expressing any kind of emotion at all. It was like she was just stunned into silence, and I just didn't know. I just didn't know what she was thinking. And whenever I would approach her, she wouldn't say a single word to me. And then in that moment, I was like, I can't tell my dad now, right? Because if that's how Mum's reacted, then my dad is. That's going to be a whole another thing. Um, and so I left it. I just kind of left it, left my parents to it, left my mum to it to kind of uh, process. process what was mm. happening. And then my sister was like, you have to tell dad. You can't like, let him <laughs> not be aware of what's going on because mum's not going to say anything. You have to say something. And then I said to my sister, I can't say it. I just can't do it now because look, look at how mum's reacted. This is my naivety because obviously I knew that she needs time to process mm. everything. Um and, then and my I think we're in fight or flight mode. Yeah. Right when we come out, we we're ready to, we're re like you said, we're ready to face the negativity mm. that we've been preparing for yeah. since we realized that we were gay. Exactly. And, and the moment came to tell my dad and I just couldn't say it. And my sister was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to take dad for a drive and I'm going to say it. And I was like, okay, fine. You do that because maybe that will be easier <laughs> because he deserves to know. But I just, I just can't say the words sure. right now. And so my sister takes my dad for a drive um, about, 20 minutes later, they come back. My dad storms into the room and sits the family together and just says, Rav, we love you no matter what. And in that moment, my mum burst into tears. I burst into tears, my sister burst into oh. tears. And I think in that moment, my mum got reassurance that everything was going to be okay because my dad said that everything's going to be fine. Your mother said something so beautiful. She said um, about your sexuality, about you. It is God's wish. We want him to be happy in front of our eyes. Yeah, that's what my mum said. Oh. And I know how lucky I am to have that response because there are so many people who don't have the privilege of having parents who are accepting and embracing. Um, and don't get me wrong, it took me, my mother a while to come to that realisation and it took a lot of me educating her from me having educated myself to tell her, to teach her that life is going to be okay because she had never had any known interaction with a gay person before yeah. anyone who was out um and so she didn't have any i guess understanding of if i could be happy right. um she didn't know if i could ever have children if i'm gay does that mean i will get married to a woman still I mean, that was one of the and were these that questions had. that were that you were asking yourself as well or or were they quest were there questions that came up from your mother that you weren't prepared for so they they were questions that i I actually was prepared for okay. uh, because I had done all of my research beforehand. And um, I 
as I mentioned before, I was fully prepared and ready to come out and fully informed at that point, uh, enough to kind of teach my parents. And so when these questions came up, I, I had an instant answer for right. my mother. And that helped her understand that actually this isn't just something that he's just thinking off the top of his head. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what he's saying to be his truth. And that helped her. Yeah, I guess that they would they would feel more they would feel reassured. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and the kind of months after I came out to her, my mum suddenly took a bit of a deep dive into Sikh scripture as well. Because I think she was trying to find answers within the scriptures. And the overall conclusion was that there's nothing wrong with being gay. Yeah. That's what she got from what the scriptures were saying. Because the way we were raised with the religion was that everybody is equal and that includes LGBTQ plus people. And she said that if we practice that, if we say that, then that includes everybody, including you. And and I know when it comes to... Gay people have a bit of a complex relationship when it comes to religion. Totally, yeah. To say lightly. Um, but it was... It, it was beautiful for me to see that the, my mum's and my religion is what healed us in the best way. And I, I think that's pretty beautiful, actually. It's but, so beautiful. Um, yeah, so that that's my coming out story. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's, I've got so many questions for you, and I've got to calm myself down because they're all f- buzzing through my head. I, wanna, I really want to talk about um, finding yourself within... Um, Sikhism and within the scriptures but before we get there because I think this reconciliation of of spirituality and sexuality is is hugely important for our community but before we go there you mentioned that you did like a deep dive into queer history mm-hmm. and I don't know how to I don't know how to get to the question I, I that's in my head uh, it hasn't framed itself yet but I guess I'm curious what you uncovered in that deep dive if there was something that I don't know that because you spent so long not not having anything to do with gayness and i wonder like how you encountered like what queer history looked like to you what the community looked like to you when you turned to it and then decided to dive into it so initially i i struggled to again to relate to a lot of what i was seeing because i didn't see anyone that looked like me that's being Uh, highlighted, whose works are being highlighted, whose achievements have been highlighted. And so that was a bit of a struggle because I I just couldn't see myself thriving within the community that doesn't recognize me. And were you literally typing in things like LGBTQ Sikhs? Yes, I was. And (laughs) there were some resources available, but a lot of it was kind of hidden. There were no faces associated with those support groups. Um, And I, that that was the biggest thing that I struggled with is will I do I belong in that community as somebody who has brown skin, who wears a turban, who has a beard, who is someone of faith? Do I belong to that community? Will that community embrace me? Um, but then I started to think more as an individual rather than as somebody who has to belong. Say to more about that. Well, because I, you know I think often naturally we are people who who want to find our tribe, which is wonderful but often that doesn't manifest in the way that you hope it to manifest and no it doesn't and you kind of I I mean I'm sure gay people particularly people of color within the gay community struggle with that on a daily basis when it comes to the way white people in particular interact with you (laughs) (laughs) Um, or us shall I say Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was a big thing for me I just couldn't 
I just didn't really see myself in it. But then I started thinking, actually, instead of thinking it that way, why don't you start looking at the positives? Because there was a lot of... Um, there were just... I just... Every kind of article that I saw was about how people of colour are considered the other within the LGBT community. <laughs> and I was like, okay, let's, maybe we can, I can do something to flip that script. Is there something that I can do? And so I, so I started to think about myself and if I can find my own space within the community, if that makes sense. It totally. Um, and so, so that's what I started to do. And I just, I mean, just kind of looking at things like art and looking at poetry and looking at the way representation on TV and then it's just those kind of things, those minor things. Because... Again, the things that that I struggled with, I wanted to try and find answers for. And I think it's interesting because it sounds to me as if you saw or you did not see people like you represented in this um, visually or otherwise represented in this deep dive into queer history that you're doing. And instead of, you know, internalizing that you didn't belong, Mm -hmm. you were like, how am I going to show how how much I belong? Exactly. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I love that. (laughs) And it was tough because, you know, I... I again, I, I struggled to figure out how I was going to be able to do that, but I knew that I needed to be visible in order to be able to do that. Because uh, yes, I've been on TV, but I've never spoken about my sexuality publicly before until this year. Um, but I knew, uh, but people were still reaching out to me because, as I said before, it was pretty obvious <laughs> that I'm gay. So people would reach out to me and share their stories, and but I knew that I needed, in order for me to con- conquer that visibility issue that I I um, faced, I needed to be the person to be able to do that and be a voice for some other young Sikh gay kid who might see me and think it's possible to live his truth. And did you uncover something or encounter something that inspired you in that deep dive? So we've spoken about how there was kind of a lack of, but was there something you saw, read, like specifically that you were like, wow, that maybe lit you up inside? Well, uh, completely appropriate. It was UK Black Pride, actually. Oh. <laughs> uh, I just saw... <laughs> Disclaimer, I did not know that before yeah, we started this conversation. <laughs> no, but it, it was. I, I just saw... I just started researching UK Black Pride and what it represents and what it means and, and the kind of people that attend and the people that are involved. And I just saw all of these beautiful faces and I was like, that's where I belong. And... <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, but it, and I just knew that it was possible because even though our backgrounds might be different, our stories are pretty similar. And it was through those stories that helped me reconcile my own kind of issues with my identity. And um I attended UK Black Pride for the first time this year and I almost cried because just uh, how beautiful <laughs> it was <laughs> seeing all these faces, some of them who look like me finally uh, who are being celebrated and embraced uh, and it just it just felt so comforting and I finally felt like I belonged and I just um, yeah I remember getting really emotional <laughs> at the time we, we get emotional um, every year for those for those listeners who don't know I'm the head of communications for UK Black Pride which is why I added that disclaimer <laughs> that I did not know this and obviously UK Black Pride is a community partner of the podcast mm-hmm. so um, Lady Phil will be over the moon the team will be over the moon to hear that that you discovered UK Black Pride and felt welcome 
Thank you. No, it really did mean a lot because I, this this is the first year that I've ever celebrated Pride. It's the first time that I've been out publicly. Um, and so I, I, I knew that if there was going to be one Pride event that I was going to attend, it was going to be UK Black Pride. After having done all of my research, <laughs> I needed to be there. And it turned out to be better than I had expected. Wow. It really did. So thank you. Of course. So I'm very curious to discuss the reconciliation of sexuality and faith. Um, I had a conversation, and I reference this conversation all the time, <laughs> with Reverend Jude Macaulay um, about queer black theology and, and how we find ourselves um, within religion when so many of us have been hurt uh, or religion has been weaponized against us. And so I think there's all these beautiful examples of people who have found themselves within the religions or spiritualities or faiths or theologies that they love and I'd love to hear more about how you found yourself within um, Sikhism. So uh, Sikhism is a faith that I was born into. Um, and it's something that I decided to embrace as an individual uh, later on in life, actually. And to kind of make that... Oh, interesting. Because I think, you know, often, you know, religion is one of those things that it, it comes down to circumstance, I guess. It depends on where you were born, what country you're born in, the community that you were born in. And I, I just happened to be born into a household that practiced Sikhism. And I, I never appreciated that growing up. In fact, I, I consider it to be a bit of a hindrance in terms of um, my identity uh, in school, for example. I always kind of considered it to be something that made me stand out for all of the wrong reasons. Right. And it was only in my late teens that I fully started to embrace it because for the longest time I felt as though it was something that I had to do rather than what I wanted to do. Wow. And... Mm. <laughs> Yeah, no, because yeah. I, I think that's the... It's so simple, but... Yeah. I, yeah, of course. Yeah, and so I... But then I was like, if I, if this is something that I'm doing, what do I even fully understand what I'm doing? What does this spirituality and religion actually mean? Am I just doing it just for the sake of my parents? Like, what does it actually mean? And so I started, again, doing my own research <laughs> and trying to figure out if it was, in fact, for me. Because I am of the belief that Religion, faith and spirituality is an individual thing. And even though I belong to a religion, my faith is my own. And the way I practice my faith, I do it in my own way. Um, even though I do consider myself to be a part of a, a larger organized religion, um, the way I practice my spirituality is the way I choose to do it. And some people might not fully be able to get their head around that, but it's my life and I'll do what I want to. Yes. <laughs> um, and so for me, um, my spirituality and my religion is, is what's kept me grounded. I think if, if it wasn't there, I may have gone the other way from what I was saying earlier in terms of um, worst case scenario, shall we say. Are you a hunter or an outdoor enthusiast? Take your love for firearms to the next level with Goat Guns. Our miniatures are an ideal addition to your hunting gear or cabin decor. Each model is meticulously crafted, capturing the essence of legendary firearms. Celebrate your passion for the outdoors by displaying these stunning pieces. With Goat Guns, you can showcase your love for hunting and firearms in a unique and artistic way. Explore our collection now and embrace your outdoor spirit at GoatGuns.com. So in, in the turmoil of your, um, 
I don't want to say turmoil. Yeah, I do. Okay. So in the turmoil of, of this kind of inner battle you were fighting about your sexuality, you found um, a source of strength in, in, in your faith. Yeah, absolutely. A source of strength and also a, a sense of belonging too because it, it clarified to me right. that I, I matter, I, I, I belong, and my life is equally as valid as the next person who considers themselves a Sikh as well. Just because I happen to live my life a different way to another person, that doesn't make me less of a Sikh. Mm. And I kind of understanding that through my spiritual practices um, helped me validate who I am in a sense because I got the answers that were essentially there my whole life but I kind of never was proactive in looking for those answers and I just discovered that uh, my faith is is and my, my spiritual practice is what will keep me here, I think. I think that's probably the best way to look at it for me. And, and I wasn't very familiar at all um, with Sikhism mm -hmm. um, when we first spoke. And so I did my research too and was really struck. I did not know that um, Sikhs, for example, or Sikhism is really about equality and social justice. Uh, it's monotheistic and um, that God is gender neutral. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I was, it felt like, and this might sound a bit dramatic, but as I was reading up, I was like, oh my God, this is the faith of the moment. <laughs> Does that make sense? Without yeah. making it a fad, mm -hmm. but rather to say the tenets, I've written some of them down. Um, so the core values of Sikhism are derived from three equally important tenets, an honest living and an honest day's work, sharing with others what God and life have given and living life fully with an awareness of the divine within each of us. Yeah. <laughs> Coupled exactly with it. a gender neutral God, equality between men and women. And this idea of marriage in Sikh Sikhism is about the marriage of souls, not necessarily a man and a woman. Yes. So it, that's exactly the point that I raised to my mother as well, was that the, the scripture doesn't specify a gender when it talks about uh, marriage and relationships. But like most religions, uh, a lot of the way the religion is practiced is influenced by cultural influences. Or the, and, uh, the patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, the patriarchy, well, there you go. <laughs> and so often those points that you've raised, they are, are never highlighted when it comes to um, issues that are often considered to be, quote, taboo. And for me, that's rather contradictory because a lot of cultural practices go against what the faith teaches. Mm. <laughs> and a lot both, of, both ways though right both, yeah. yeah both ways uh, and I think that's why I needed to educate myself about what it is I am practicing because I think for a lot of a lot of my life I lived my life the way other people expected me to live my life rather right. than me doing doing it for myself and kind of taking a deep dive and reading those tenets reading the scriptures and actually seeing that um a lot of the, these kind of cultural expectations aren't, they don't come from what the scriptures say. It's actually, quote, man-made yeah. <laughs> expectations. <laughs> and so it's kind of clarifying all of that for me was what helped me kind of center myself and I don't find myself, I guess. 
But I think, uh, as as you mentioned, I think Sikhism is a really beautiful religion, and mm. it's supposed to be accepting of all, and it's supposed to be an e- a, a, a religion that practices equality. But often, people who practice the faith don't practice equality or or all of those other things. And I think that's where the barrier came for me when coming out, because I knew that those people would uh, impose their their opinions of how they expect me to live my life for somebody who is Sikh. Uh, and it certainly has happened a lot <laughs> since I came out. <laughs> um, um, but uh, I, I think deep down, like, I, I, I don't really care. My, my faith is my own. My spirituality is my own. My parents have accepted me. The, my religion accepts me. So if you don't accept me, then who cares? Yeah. Speak. Yes. <laughs> that <laughs> is a you. sermon. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I also wanted to, to unpack something a little more as well. So the third tenet, um, living life fully with an awareness of the divine within each of us. One, divine is one of my top five favorite words, concepts, anything. I just, it conjures up so much, right? It's a world within itself. It's one of the most beautiful words in the English language. And I'm curious how you have encountered the divine within yourself. And I mean this both spiritually as a as a spiritual practice but i also mean if it can be separated in a more secular sense as well how you've encountered the divine within yourself um it's taken me a lot of time to get to that point because i think for the longest time i didn't think i was worthy of that divine because i again i just struggled to to figure out my place in the world and i didn't know if all of these divine benefits are, are destined for me right. um, because I kind of, for the longest time, because I was so closeted, I felt as though my life wasn't um, the way I was supposed to live, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it took me a while to kind of get to a point of uh, loving myself in that sense. Um, you know, as you mentioned before, Sikhism is about having spirituality internalized and manifesting through an individual's experience and the way they interact with the world, like most religions, I guess. Um, And kind of, I don't even know, I don't even know how to put it. Uh, It's... um, I don't know, it's been a a struggle to kind of get to a point where I'm able to fully understand my own divinity, if that makes sense. I don't know. Totally. Um, (laughs) And what have you, and so I guess what I'm trying to uncover or pick out of you Mm -hmm. is, is there a process that you go through? Is there there a practice that you have to remind yourself of your divinity? Um, You know, what, what is that process like for you? Is it meditative? Is it contemplative? Is it, how do you coax the divine out of you? How do you recognize it when you look in the mirror? How do you remind yourself that you are divine? So for me, one of my, my, I guess, biggest spiritual practices that I do on a daily basis, I, I meditate every evening. Um, I, I take an opportunity to look at my day and how I have potentially impacted other people through my own, uh, my the way that I've interacted with other people, how I may have um, inspired or upset or or uh, conjured any kind of emotion in a way so I, I like to process that through my meditation so that I can educate myself and teach myself uh, about how I can be a better person and how I can be a representative of myself in the best way forward 
by putting my best self forward. Um, so meditation and uh, I think a lot of a, a lot of what I do is I like to give back and and help other people. And so through through doing that, whether it be through creating food and serving food in the Gurdwara, in the temples, for example, um, and and uh, doing charity work, I think that that's a big part of what I, I love to do to kind of center myself and find myself, find my inner peace, find my divine. Um, so I do a lot of, of internal reasoning and reconciliation about the interactions that I've had in the day. Um, and I just go from there. And I, I const before I go to bed, I always tell myself that everything's going to be okay, no matter how stressful and difficult the day's been. Everything is going to be fine. I, every day, every moment that I wake up in the morning, I realize how privileged I am to be able to wake up and and do what I do. And um, even though I, I'm not the, I don't have a lot of people who follow me, but I, I know that there are people out there who I can reach and I can influence. Um, and I. I know that sounds like a, a lot of heavy things to kind of burden yourself with, but I I take a lot of pride in that, and yeah, I think I think that's probably it. I think there's something really beautiful when you know because there's an aspect of living in a capitalist society which really promotes the individual to the detriment of of community, right? You are an individual person in the pursuit of your success and money and fame should is the focus right capitalism really engenders that mm -hmm. that type of thinking but then in a in a spiritual sense and indeed a, a community sense there is a there is an individuality that is i guess rooted in a self-awareness yeah. and a self-realization and i think this connection to faith and spirituality can for some of us i don't mm -hmm. not for everyone but can for some of us help solidify that connection so that we can then be of service to a, a larger number of, of people, or at least can give us the strength to realize that it is a big thing to want to change the world and to make it better, but that there's something that I can do in my daily life that gets me closer to that goal and indeed helps other people. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's exactly what I try and do. <laughs> it's not easy though, because yeah. it, sometimes it can feel like it's impossible to, to, to take that on. But, um, I I think that I get a lot of my strength from being amongst others and learning from their experiences and how it can impact me and how my experiences can impact someone else, which is, is, the, is at the heart of a lot of what I do uh, in terms of my personal life as well as professionally. Um, and it's taken a lot of teaching myself how to find that balance because I think sometimes people can get overwhelmed with those concepts of changing the world <laughs> and I have to be this person who's going to represent other people but and who are we to think we can change the world exactly who are these little brown gay boys who think <laughs> they're going to change the world <laughs> we are we're changing it on a daily basis so watch out <laughs> yeah so I, I think that's an important part of this encountering the divine right and I to, sorry my mind is racing now I'm so inspired by you I think you know John Amici, when I interviewed him, was saying that he, you know, he's achieved all of this stuff. He makes an impact in people's lives. He was the first, you know, gay basketball player in the, uh, in, in, in the NBA. Um, but he doesn't believe in this kind of 
individual excellence as it were right because he feels that excellence makes it unattainable for other people right he doesn't want to be the prize negro he that those are my words not his but you know and i think that's a very interesting concept to to think about as well that there is a humility in this change that is necessarily connected to everybody else Right. Mm -hmm. It's you and I aren't unique unicorns who have a certain set of skills that no one else can have. It's just that we feel particularly motivated in this direction. Yeah. And I think that's an important I think it's an important designation to make that anyone can do this. And it does feel overwhelming. Yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> Every, anyone can do this. And I think that's why it's important for me to be visible as somebody who is trying to strive for the best so that somebody else may feel inspired to do the same. You know, I don't think I'm better than anyone. You know, mm. there are going to be plenty of other Sikh gay people who are going to come after me and spread the word and try and improve the lives of others. And, you know, if I help someone inspire, if inspire that kind of th thing, then fine. But, you know, you know, I don't see myself better than anybody else mm. and I can only achieve what I achieve by working hard and and hoping for the best really I'd love to talk about your work um, for the UK lesbian and gay immigration group yes. talk to me about how you got involved with them so it really just happened because of a Twitter exchange <laughs> so I, I started following um, their Twitter page and I was really inspired by the work that they do um, and through that one follow the chief executive reached out to me and said hey we want to work with you and I said I want to work with you like how can we make this happen and we kind of went back and forth for a while um, and then actually BBC got in touch with me and said if, is there any any uh, charities out there that you would like to highlight in this film that we're making about you and I said yeah I've heard have you heard of the UK lesbian and gay uh, immigration group and they said we have we've actually been looking into them we're going to get in touch with them and we're going to get you in touch with them face to face and it just happened like that and we started to work on a project called Lend Your Voice uh, to support oh, it's beautiful campaign. yes yeah. it, it really really is so there are you know people the whole kind of immigration thing is a, a hot topic when it comes to politics, but people often f to forget about the individuals that are involved in this uh, um, really difficult moment in their life, transitioning into a new country, escaping. Uh, for these people in particular are escaping persecution because of their, their sexuality and their gender identity. Um, and often they, they think that they're coming to the UK for a better life, but then they're held in detention centres where uh, they are subjected to violence, um, a lot of um, verbal abuse, and they don't know where where their future lies. And I I wanted to lend my voice because I'm a son of, of two immigrants to the UK. I am a gay person and um again just I just happen to be born in the UK. If I was born in, in a nation where uh, LGBTQ people are not accepted, I may have been one of those people. Um and I th again I think it's very easy to get lost in the London bubble of things. Uh, we're very lucky and very privileged to be in a city where uh, you can be openly gay and accepted for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. For the most part. Uh, and I, I just really love their work that they do. And they asked me to come on board with their campaign. And I immediately said yes. And to hear some of the stories from the people who have been in these detention centers is really heartbreaking. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're trying to, to change, the, they're trying to 
ensure that there is a time limit for how long someone can be held in a detention center. Mm. Um, Sorry, UKLGIG is is trying to is campaigning for a detention center time limit. Yes, Got yes, it. they are. Okay. They are. Um, and so that so that's the the lend your voice campaigns because they they want people to sign the petition. I think they have reached the the um, the amount of signatures that they needed but they do really do need the as, as much support as possible so please 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 go and check them out and 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 send some support their way and and i think you began to touch on this but i'd like to talk about it explicitly what has this work with uklgig through this work rather with uklgig what are you discovering about both britain and the global lgbtq community there are so many people across the world who are suffering just because of who they are. And they are people of color, just like me and you. And I couldn't sit back and let it happen in that way. I needed to be able to be visible and use my voice to try and influence change as much as I can, as I'm able to as an individual. You know, I, the piece that I did with the BBC, I met with a guy who comes from Russia who, uh, has been completely rejected by not just his family but his entire community who's had to flee to the UK. I met someone from uh, the Caribbean who completely rejected by her family based on her fa- the her family's faith uh, and society ex- expectation of of her. And um, but she's trans and she, there was no way that she was able to live in that part of the world freely and openly and um, safely and safely mm. and hearing their stories it really puts things into perspective. So many people use social media as a a means to talk about uh, how they want to influence change, but actually when it comes down to it, people don't physically do anything. Um, And I I refused to be that person. And so I'm I'm working on several different projects with uh, this organization to, to make the lives of queer people around the world better and it's just one of those things like I, I, I hope that I'm able to do it um, but we'll see I, I'm definitely going to try people just they must be I, I can't speak for them but when I when I first saw you I was like oh my heart <laughs> <laughs> so you must be such a welcome sight for for people um, who may be having a very difficult time in their lives yeah again it's just one of those things when you see people that look like you who are are thriving and trying to help in whatever way that I can. It makes life slightly easier, even if it is for that those few moments where we're interacting. Uh, it just comes back to me not have it, ever having those visible role models. And if I, just by me being who I am, the way that I look, similar to somebody who might be suffering, who can see me as... I don't want to say like a success story because that's not the case at all, but see me as, as a, pos- as a, I don't yeah, know. one of the possible outcomes. Yeah. As one of the possible outcomes, then, then a job well done, I think. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got two questions for you to close the show. The first is, you know, busy being black reaches people all over the world. Um, what would you tell a little, a younger version of yourself I will say stop overthinking things (laughs) Um, 
just give yourself time. There's no rush. Um, things will fall into place. It might be difficult. There are going to be moments where you're going to get upset. Um, there are going to be moments where you're going to question who you are. But things, things will fall into place. But you have to put the work in. Don't expect things to just fall into your lap without you having to put the work in to do it. Um, but stick in there. Oh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you hang in there and hung in there. Yeah. Thank you. To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? That's a very deep question, Josh. Mm. Um, there are so many things that I hope for, actually. But um, I will say that... I hope that one day the lives of queer people of colour only gets better. Um, for so long, we have been discarded from the conversation. Um, our lives are, are often not highlighted um, but I want the achievements of us to be celebrated in a way that will inspire the next generation and um, that's the work that I'm trying to do through my podcast and the work that I continue to do and that you continue to do Josh um, but I, I just hope that I just hope that we can truly be equal amongst people who say that they would like to be equal. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope to change the world. That was really cheesy. I'm I so it. sorry. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, no, I got a bit emotional thinking of that last question. So I wasn't really thinking straight. But No, um, that's a beautiful response. But thank you. Yeah. And I'm so impressed and I'm so honored to share this space with you and to be alive at the same time as you, and that you've come here so vulnerable and generous. And thank you for, for coming and for being you. Thank you so much, Josh. It means a lot. I'm, as I said, I'm a big fan of this podcast. <laughs> I've, met, I've, I've been introduced to so many wonderful people just through listening to you and your guests speak their truth in such a beautiful way. And um, yes, power to us, eh? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Rav Bansal is a baker and broadcaster who rose to fame as a contestant on Great British Bake Off in 2016. His newest broadcasting venture, his podcast, Do You Wear That in the Shower, challenges some of the more widely held misconceptions about Sikhs and Sikhism. You can find links to his work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe.
I'm Anushka Astana and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts.